As we continue in our series today, we're talking about baptism and also communion. In this series, we're, we're talking about what we believe as a church. When the enemy foolishly tried to tempt Jesus to sin, the king of glory very quickly put Satan down by quoting scripture. And, in, and you see this in both Luke and also in Matthew chapter 4. He quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 3. Jesus tells the enemy, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. We are desperate for the word of God. It is our life. It is the word that sustains us. And so every single Sunday, today is no exception. We want to be focused on the word, on our God who is speaking today through the power of his spirit as his word is heard. And so we want to sing the word as we already have, and we'll do more so today. We want to be people that will pray the word and preach the word and respond to the word. And the reason why is that the word is what allows us to know God. And so this series is all about our core truths from the word that define who we are and that shape us as a people of God that are called to be set apart, which is to be holy for God. Because that is where joy comes from when we're walking with the Lord In his presence, that is joy. That is why we are studying what we believe as a church. Today, we're pondering what we believe about baptism and communion. Let me read to you our statement of faith about baptism and communion. We believe that Christian baptism is the immersion in water of a believer into the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit to show forth our faith in the crucified, buried, and risen Savior in the solemn and beautiful symbol. It symbolizes our death to sin and resurrection to new life and is a response to the command of Christ. Communion takes place as believers by the sacred use of bread and juice commemorates together the sacrificial love of Christ, preceded always by solemn self examination. And so we just were able to see the baptisms that we've had here with this faith family, and we're going to partake of the Lord's table later on this morning with communion, and both of these are pictures. They're symbols that point to the gospel. Both communion and baptism do not have any salvific Properties, they don't save us, don't add to our salvation. And so we're not saved by by water or by bread or grape juice or some traditions, wine. Here we use the unfermented kind. But it doesn't save you. It can't save you. There are symbols that point to someone who has been saved. They're a picture of salvation itself. But Probably if you've been a believer for any length of time, or even in this church, you've already heard what we believe about baptism and communion. But today, I want us to ponder why. I want us to really meditate on the significance of why are these two symbols that do not save us, but that point to our salvation, why are they so critical, so essential to our faith? 
Let me give you the short answer that we'll unpack here this morning. Communion and baptism both reveal the heart of God. It reveals to us what God is like, his heart, his desires, his intention. And you you see that so clearly. So you see the heart of God. You also see the purpose of God. We get a glimpse of who God is, and we get a glimpse of what his work, what his purpose is. These two symbols show us the reason why we exist. So why are you even here in the first place? And you're like, because my mom dragged me here and I had to come to church. No, that's not what I mean. I don't mean why are you here at this school this morning. I mean, why are you here on the face of this planet? Why are you even alive? What is your actual purpose for having breath in your lungs We see that on display with communion and with baptism. So we see the person and the purpose of God, who, as we saw recently, is a triune God, and it is all about delight in him. And so let's first begin with baptism. We're going to give you three truths that build on each other that show us the heart and the purpose of God. So number one, let's look at the foundation of baptism. So let's look at the ground zero, the the framework, if you will. Like what is the foundation that baptism is built on? So the Old Testament context. So first let's look at the foundation. Now, if we're going to understand baptism and why it's so significant, there's a key word that you have to understand first. And that word is covenant. You have to understand what the Bible reveals about covenants. Because if you don't, then baptism will have a very shallow understanding in your heart and in your mind. We have a God who makes and keeps covenants. And that begins in the very beginning with Genesis chapter 1. Now, if you're taking notes, let me give you a brief definition of what a covenant is in the Bible. A covenant is an agreement between two parties in which one or both make promises under oath to perform specific actions that have been decided beforehand. So that's a long definition, but that's what it is. It it is a binding agreement. It is a relationship. It is a sacred agreement where two parties enter into a relationship and they make promises to each other and it's sealed with an oath and there are specific stipulations that are described that both parties are going to do certain things that show their commitment to this covenant relationship. So a very common biblical covenant is called the suzerain and vassal. And you're like, what? That's just old English words. All it really means is Lord and servant. The suzerain was the one that had authority and power and resources and land. And so suzerain refers to having authority. And so you have the suzerain, who's the Lord, and then you have the vassal. This is a political term that refers to those that are under the authority of another. And so that refers to being a 
servant. And so the servant did not own land, did not have any power or authority or resources, but they would enter into an agreement where they would serve the Lord or the suzerain. Now, this was a deep relationship. Remember, this is ancient culture. This is not 21st century Texas culture. And it was a tribal culture where the family unit was everything. It was not individualistic like we are today in America. And so in this very tribal family environment, a covenant was entering into basically a relationship where you would treat the other person as though they were family, even if they weren't actually your blood relative. And there were obligations on both sides. The Lord would promise to bless the servant, and the servant would promise to serve the master. And it was sealed with blood. Like, this is how they would consummate this covenant. And actually, it was described as cutting a covenant. So the word covenant and cutting is the same word because the idea of cutting is is at the essence of what covenant means. And so they would literally take large animals like a goat or an ox, and they would literally cut it in half. If you can just picture a very large animal like a bull that's been literally cut in half, can you imagine the mess that would And they would take these animals, cut them in half, and they would separate them and let the blood pool in the middle, and it would create literally a pool of blood, and this is known as the blood path. And they would actually walk through, like like walk through the blood, and that was symbolic to say, if I, the Lord, go back on my promises, or you, the servants, if you go back on your promises on this agreement, this covenant, then may I experience what just happened to these animals, which is to die, to have your blood shed. And so this is the way covenants were made, and, and it, this really kind of like governed the ancient world. It was, it was all based on these kinds of, of covenant deep relationships. It wasn't just business. It was always family. And so what you had was lots of different elements to a covenant. But to keep it simple, I'll mention just three of the elements that were always present. One, there were always requirements. Every single covenant always had a list of specific requirements for both the Lord and for the servants. There were always blessings or benefits. So you servants, you serve me, there's a requirement, and if you get attacked, I'll bring my army to protect you. So there were benefits, there were blessings that would come with the agreement. But then on the other end, the servants had to serve, and then the master had to be there whenever the servant needed him. So it was a mutually beneficial agreement, but there were stipulations or requirements. So there's always requirements and blessings, and there were always curses for breaking the covenant. And so every covenant always had these three elements. Now, with that brief, there's a lot more to be said, but with that very brief historical context on the Bible and how covenants worked, let's ponder Genesis chapter 1 just for a moment. 
You have Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And what you see here, the pattern is that of covenant, because God is the Lord. He is the suzerain, okay? You have God who created the whole world, okay? He has all the power, all the authority. And then he makes this land called Eden, and he gives it to Adam and Eve. And so you have the Lord who is blessing Adam and Eve, saying, here's this land. And, and he says that he's going to bless them, but they're called to serve the Lord. They get to live on the land, but they have to work that land. But what they get beyond the land and the blessings is they get the very presence of God himself. Because you see in Genesis 3, God walking with them in the evening. Can you just imagine? Can you imagine a world where there is no sin, no conflict, where work doesn't even feel like work. It's not tedious. And you enjoy your wife or your husband. And, and then at the end of the day, God literally comes and you have his presence and he talks to you. And you get to enjoy him. Like this is literally a picture of heaven because that's what that is. And so what you see here is absolutely stunningly beautiful. And the Old Testament has this phrase repeated over and over and over. And it says, I will be your God and you will be my people. This is covenant language of I belong to you and you belong to me. And you see this in Genesis 1. Let's read about it here briefly. Genesis 1, verse 27 and 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then you go to chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Do you see the covenant pattern right here in Genesis 1 and 2? where you have requirements. Adam is required to work. He's required to serve God, to expand the borders of Eden. It says to fill the earth. It doesn't say fill the garden. It says fill the earth. So expand. Have children who will have children, and you will teach them God's ways, that they will then reflect to God's glory and worship him and serve him. Lead all of humanity. So you have Adam here is the like covenant head of all of humanity, called to obey and to worship God. And there's blessings. What is the first thing that it says in verse 28? And God blessed them. Their eyes are opened. They're just created. And the very first words that they hear from the Father is, blessing, blesses them. And so you have 
this blessing of everything in the garden of each other, Adam and Eve, but most of all, the blessing of the very presence of God himself. So you have the requirements, you have the blessings, and then you have the curse. What did God tell Adam? If you disobey, if you break this covenant, you will surely die. And so you have the pattern of covenant already in Genesis 1 and Two, you see God's original intent, his heart, his purpose, what he wants, what he's been after from the very beginning is he made humanity in his image and he creates a head of humanity that would love his wife, that would defeat the enemy, that would expand the borders, that would multiply worshipers, that the whole planet would be filled with people who treasure the presence of God himself. You see God wanting to live with his people and led by one head of humanity to lead us. This is what God's design has always been, to image his glory, to enjoy him. And if you want one phrase that captures all of this, it's God's purpose is to create a people of God who are living in the place of God, enjoying the presence of God. It's all about a people in God's place enjoying his presence. This is God's design. This is God's original intent. But what happened with Adam? He failed. He didn't protect his woman. He didn't crush the head of the serpent. He already had dominion over everything that creeped on the ground. He had dominion, authority over the serpent, and yet he was too checked out to care. And men, we have inherited his same nature. And so the world was plunged into corruption. Why? Because Adam broke the covenant. He did not keep the covenant. And so all of the blessings are turned upside down and become curses. This is following the covenant pattern. And so the blessing of life, now what happened with Adam on that day? He died spiritually on that day. And his body began to degenerate on that day. He started to die physically. And now humanity is cursed Covenant curses. We are cursed with death. We are cursed with disease. They were given each other, and it says, to enjoy each other, to be naked and unashamed, to have intimacy in this beautiful thing called marriage. And instead, now there's conflict. The curses. You see it in marriage. You see it in in work. The blessing of work. Now it's cursed. And now work feels like work. And it's tedious. And we become workaholics and we sacrifice our health and our our families for our work. It's become a curse. Work is cursed. Work is good, but currently it's cursed. What about Eve, the mother of all living humans, of all living creatures that have God's image? And it says that now there is pain and suffering and even death in giving birth. 
And so all of these blessings are now, it's not just the loss of blessing, it's that the blessings have actually become curses. This is our human condition. This is our world. We're experiencing God's covenant curses because we are covenant breakers. We're lawbreakers, and we didn't love God. We loved sin more. So what does God do? He brings a new Adam, so to speak, on the scene. And with Noah, who creates a new humanity, cleanses the earth through the flood. And so you have this new Adam of sorts, told to also multiply and fill the earth. But Adam, but Noah, also fails and dies. So God brings a new Adam, a new covenant head, and his name is Abraham. And God gives him the same covenant promises that he gave to Adam and then to Noah are restated with Abraham. You see this in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. Genesis 15, what you see is they cut a covenant. They walk through the the blood path. In Genesis 17, God restates the covenants, but this time God gives Abraham a sign, a physical sign of the covenant. Genesis 17, this is verses 9 through 14. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout the generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from a foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenants be in your flesh an everlasting. You hear that? This covenant is meant to be everlasting, no ending covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from the people. He has broken my covenant. So God does not appreciate it when his people break his covenant. And he gives a physical sign of this covenant relationship and its circumcision. You're thinking of all the possible signs. Why in the world would God use this? That, and maybe you're thinking, please don't go into any detail. The kids are in the room. I won't. I'll let you teach your kids about that at home. But there is a reason why God chose circumcision to point to the covenant. First of all, the penis represented the whole person. And In the process of cutting the foreskin, you can imagine there's bloodshed. So that's important. represents the whole person, and it requires bloodshed. And it was a symbol. It signified a removal, a cutting off, and it pointed to a cleansing from sin. 
which is why it says those who refuse to be circumcised to be cut off from the covenant. And so the idea is you cut off the foreskin, and it represents that their sin has been cut off, that they've been cleansed. Now, of course, we know that cutting off a small part of skin does not change a person's heart. It was a symbol that pointed to a much deeper need. You keep following the story, and then you get to Exodus chapter 20, and God's people are enslaved by Egypt. And what happens? There is bloodshed. A lamb dies at that first Passover, and the blood is put on the doorpost, signifying that a lamb's blood was shed to take the place of that firstborn son who represented the entire family. And then God gathers them at Mount Sinai, and what does God do with them there? In in Exodus 19 and 20, he gives them the word. He gives them his law. He establishes his covenant with them. There is bloodshed with the lamb. They are set free, and then God gives them their requirements for the covenant. Guess what Ten Commandments are? Guess what the law is? It's the requirements of the covenant. And then God gives them blessings, and what is the main blessing he gives them? I will be your God. What more do we need? What more could we want? So he gives them the requirements, the law. He gives them the blessings, his very own presence. They make the tabernacle. God is right there living with them. But then he also gives them the curses. If you disobey, if you break my covenant, you will die. Does this sound familiar? You see this all the way back in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And if you're curious, I don't have time today because it will be too long. Deuteronomy 28, 20th chapter of Deuteronomy, which you see is all the blessings for obedience, all the curses for disobedience, for breaking the covenant. I want to read to you one verse in Deuteronomy chapter 30, soon after he gives this list of blessings and curses. This is what God inspired Moses to write. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise, listen to this, your heart and the heart of your offspring for a purpose. Circumcise your heart. Remember, cut off your sin. That's what it points to. He will circumcise your heart. He says, so that, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. He's undoing the curses. He's promising to push back the darkness. He's promising that one day he will take the curses and he will allow us to live, to be made new, with new hearts that no longer love the darkness, that no longer love sin and evil, but have hearts that now it says love the Lord, where we love him more than we love anything else that this world could offer us, because what is better than the presence of God himself? And so physical 
circumcision pointed to the need for a spiritual one, a spiritual resurrection to be changed, to have new hearts, cutting off our sin, making us clean. And so everything about circumcision points to the need for resurrection. It was an external physical symbol that showed that someone had faith, trust in God. So it was a sign, an external symbol that pointed to an internal heart that was trusting in God. It was a sign that said, you belong to the people of God. You are set apart from other nations. And so there is the foundation of baptism. If you want to understand baptism, you first have to have a working understanding of a God who makes covenant with his people. Let's talk about number two, the focus of baptism. The focus. See, baptism reveals God's focus, what he's focused on, his purpose, his goal in redemption. Let's read about that in Colossians. Let's fast forward to the New Testament. We'd, we could look at more of the old, but our time would expire. So let's, let's go to the New Testament and look at Colossians chapter 2 and how the New Testament picks up the, the same theme of covenant and circumcision and says it's all about Jesus. Colossians 2 verse 11. In him, this is in Jesus, in Christ. So in him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, so spiritually, by putting off, so cutting off, the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, this is us, who were, it's past tense, were dead. Remember the curses. We were dead under the curse. We were dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Are you following this? Do you see how absolutely stunning and amazing this is when you begin to understand the Old Testament and see how it all points to Jesus. This is that we were uncircumcised. That means that we were in our sin under the curse of God as covenant breakers. And it says that we were dead and that we were made alive in Christ because of his resurrection. Because God looked at you and you have a record of debt that stands against you with legal demands. You know what that record is? A record of all your sins. Picture a scroll. If you unrolled it, it would scroll all the way to the back of the room. A big old long scroll with every one of your sins. With every one of your 
failures. With every single lustful thought, every single lazy moment, every single time where you blew it and you broke covenant with God and deserve the curses. The father took that record and he held it up to the cross and he nailed it through the hands of Jesus onto the cross. Paid in full. And in the process, it says he has disarmed the enemy. The enemy has no power over you. You are not defined by your failures. You are defined by who you are in Christ. And isn't it interesting that the Bible describes baptism in this same paragraph that it describes this circumcision made without hands, a spiritual circumcision. This is fulfillment of Deuteronomy chapter 30, having your heart circumcised that you may live. We're made alive in Christ. Baptism is a picture of resurrection. It's a picture that we were dead as covenant breakers and that Christ died in our place and that Christ was resurrected and he has then resurrected us, which is why we only baptize believers. We don't baptize babies. We don't baptize anyone until they're old enough to understand who Jesus is, their sin, why he died, and the meaning of baptism as a picture of a resurrection, a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of the heart of God to not leave us in our sin, but for the Son of God to become a human and take our place. This is what baptism is about. It's about Jesus taking our covenant curses. And so we baptize believers by immersion in water because it shows us the gospel. Baptism at its root is God reclaiming covenant promises. It is about God saying, I'm going to bless you and I'll be your God and you will be my people, pushing back the darkness and restoring us to fellowship with him, to communion with him. Baptism points to union in Christ. It's about the people of God living in the place of God, in the presence of God. That is what baptism points to. So what is the foundation? Covenant, union with God. What is the focus? Being restored back to God. Lastly, the fruit. What is the fruit of baptism? Well, let me give you just two brief answers on the results that baptism gives us to implications. So the, the fruit of baptism, one is that it's you declaring that you belong to Jesus. So through baptism, someone, like we just saw the video of everyone so far baptized in our church. It's, it's declaring these are people that belong to Jesus. By baptism, the person says, I am not ashamed. I will follow Jesus to the end. I will obey him because I love him more than I love my sin. And so it's a powerful picture that you're declaring that you belong 
to Jesus. It's also declaring that you belong to the people of Jesus. In baptism, we see the gospel, yes, but we see how it's not about you. Baptism is about the community of God, the people of God, that he is making people. You will be my people, and I will be your God. And so baptism is profoundly important because what it does is it reminds us that we are part of a faith family, that you were adopted into a family. And so we're to love each other as brothers and sisters. And we don't have the option of following Jesus as an individual. We follow him together. Is it really surprising that Jesus said to go there for disciples of all nations and to baptize them? It's not surprising because it shows the very heart of God and the purpose of God. It shows that he wants us, he yearns for us to be near him. And he moved heaven and earth in order for us to be brought near. It's about mercy. And this defines who we are, a people who have tasted his mercy. May we be people who respond with awe, who worship him, because he alone is worthy. Well, just like with baptism, communion points to the gospel and is rooted in the God who makes covenants, and it also shows the heart and purpose of God. So they're different acts, and yet both have the same significance. And so there's one other thing that I didn't mention earlier about this, this truth of God wanting to dwell with his people and that we're meant to be the people of God in the place of God for, for, with, with the presence of God. Well, one more element of making a covenant included eating a meal. That was just the way covenants were finished. After you would cut the covenant, you would then share a meal, eating together as a picture of union, of fellowship, of this sacred union in a covenant. And you see that again in Genesis 1 with the Garden of Eden. God tells Adam and Eve, he sets up this pattern of coming. We saw that earlier. And he tells them, take, eat. And he gives them food to eat. And he walks with them, enjoying them, and them enjoying him. And this, this picture of just sheer joy of eating together. And you fast forward with Abraham, he, where he reasserts, reestablishes the covenant, and in Genesis 18, what happens? The Lord shows up, and Abraham has a meal with him. And that's where he restates that they will have a child just one year later. So you have this covenant established in chapter 17, and the very next chapter, they eat a meal. Exodus 12, God's people are to be set free from slavery, so a lamb has to die, and what does God give them to do? To eat a meal, to eat the Passover meal before they will be set free and then go to Mount Sinai and reestablish the covenant. And that's in chapter 20 of Exodus. Chapter 24 of Exodus shows Moses and Joshua 
and other leaders go up to the mountain. If you're curious, read it on your own time. Exodus 24, verses 7 through 11, it describes them eating a meal with God there. The covenant is established, and so Moses and other leaders literally eat with God. Fast forward a little bit further. Leviticus chapter 7, God is establishing these different sacrifices because we're sinners and need to be forgiven of our sin. And there's this one sacrifice called the peace offering. And guess how it ended? You guessed it. Eating a meal with the priest. Eating a meal with your friends and family. Literally eating with God. The idea here is of enjoying his presence. And so our time is going to expire. I'll give more examples, but I think you get the point. The Bible is clear that he has made us to eat with God. Literally, we have been designed by God to eat with him, to enjoy him. And there's something special about sharing a meal with someone. It's a picture of a fellowship, of union, of friendship. Which is why in John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus literally feeds our souls, fulfills this need that we have for God himself. And on the very night that he was betrayed, what did he do? He ate a meal with his closest friends, a Passover meal. Because Jesus is the ultimate and the final Passover lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus then breaks the bread and tells his followers, take, eat. Who were made? to eat with God, to have communion with him, to enjoy him. Is it really a surprise that if you fast forward to the end of time, when we're resurrected and we're in heaven, Revelation 19 describes us having a snack. It's not a snack. It's a feast. It's a banquet. It's the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's, it's the biggest party. It's like a party. It's not just a party. It's like, if we, can't, we can't even get our minds around what that's going to be like. Can you just even begin to picture the feast that God the Father is going to throw when all of his redeemed come to glory, where he has brought his sons and daughters resurrected, and now they're in his presence, and you have the people of God living in the place of God, enjoying the presence of God, eating a meal together, and then eating from the tree of life that has fruits of many different kinds that's a healing for the nations. We're going to eat together with our God face to face and enjoy him. This right here is the foundation of communion. The foundation of communion is just that. Communion, it's intimacy with 
God. It's eating with God. Let's talk about the focus of communion here briefly as we're going to, in just a minute, actually partake of the elements. Let me read to you 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 26, as we see the focus of communion. For I received from the Lord that I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup in the new covenant. There's that word again. In the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so, again, the foundation of communion really is in a covenant-making God. And Jesus here calls it the new covenant in my blood. And it's really not new. It's the same one that you see in Genesis all the way through, but it is a renewed covenant. So it's, it's a picture of renewal. But God gave this church this name. It's all about Jesus renewing, making all things new. And so in this renewal of this covenant, this new covenant, you see the bread represents the body of Christ, the sacrifice to take the curses because we're the law breakers. We're the covenant breakers. And he has kept the covenants completely. And so he is that Passover lamb. And the cup represents his blood that was shed to pay the redemption Price to set slaves free. So it's all about God's renewal. And so communion is God reclaiming the covenant promises of him being our God, we being his people, living in his presence. And this is very important for us to understand because the covenant reveals that God has standards that we're called to be holy, and that there are curses for our disobedience, but we praise God that Jesus endured our curses for us and gives us a new heart that wants to obey. And so covenant reveals that God moves to bless us. And so when we approach in this moment the Lord's table, some of you here are overwhelmed with guilt. Maybe you're overwhelmed with with failure or struggle. But the point of communion is not to focus on your failures. The point is to focus on forgiveness that we receive through Christ Jesus, our Lord. The very act of taking the bread, you're saying, I believe that Jesus died in my place and he took my sin away and as you drink the juice and as you taste it may it taste sweet to you because you are tasting the mercy of God that we don't deserve but that he has graciously lavished on us so what you see with communion is we see the final Adam who is leading a new humanity back into the garden, no longer exiled, now back into the presence of God to enjoy all the covenant blessings. This is what you see with communion. 
For as often as you eat and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It is a picture of the gospel. So the foundation is that we're made to eat with God. The focus is this restoration that we have made possible because of Jesus. Lastly, the fruit of communion. So what is the fruit of communion? What is the blessings, the benefits of it? It is a physical, external representation of what we experience internally. You literally are tasting the goodness of God. The goodness of belonging to the people of God. Every one of us comes to the Lord's table the same. Sinners saved by grace. It creates unity. There's no one above or beneath. All of us are on the same level, and we are one in Christ made to eat with 